0: A lone gunman with no history of crime booked a suite at a Las Vegas hotel and fatally shot at least 59 people. What we know about one of the deadliest mass shootings in U.S. history. And a single day in Puerto Rico as President Trump arrives to survey the wreckage from Hurricane Maria. It's Tuesday, October 3rd. Richard Perez-Pena, what do we know at this point about what happened inside this hotel room in Las Vegas?
1: A man named Steven Paddock, who lived in Mesquite, Nevada, and who was a wealthy person who liked to gamble, apparently, had checked into a high-level suite in the Mandalay Bay uh, Casino Resort. It's this very fancy, luxurious hotel casino on the south end of the Las Vegas Strip. He'd been there for a couple of days. Uh, in a suite uh, that had multiple rooms on the 32nd floor, so very near the top, apparently smashed out the windows with a hammer and had an an arsenal with him. Uh, And in the two windows that he smashed out, he had set up on tripods rifles with scopes. They were AR-15 style assault rifles, which apparently, we don't know this for certain yet, but seemed to be the main weapons that he used in the shooting.
0: And what was happening on the ground below where he was finding his targets.
1: So this was this three-day country music festival called the Route 91 Harvest Festival. And at the time of the shooting, the police are estimating there were 22,000 people on this scene. Yeah, it was basically just a big empty lot where they'd set it up.
2: All of a sudden, we just heard like three or four little pop, pop, pop.
1: And a lot of people at first thought.
2: Everybody kind of looked around and said, oh, it's just firecrackers. And then we heard pop, 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 and it just kept going and going. And my husband said, that's not firecrackers. That sounds like a semiotic rifle.
1: And they didn't immediately react. We refused to believe it was a shooting until it just kept going and going. Or if they did, they did what you would ordinarily do when you think that there's gunfire, which is you hit the ground. But if the person's firing from on high, that's not gonna help you.
0: Right? We're just all sitting there looking at each other like we thinking that we're gonna die. And a security guard got shot right in front of us. Another guy got shot right next to me. You know, we just thought we were gonna die. So I called my mom to be honest with you. That's, I was just calling my mom to tell my mom that I love her and goodbye.
1: There were bursts of gunfire and then pauses in between. Either he was reloading or changing weapons or something.
0: Then people started running, and we asked what was going on, and they said it was a shooter, and, and then we realized it, was, it sounded like machine guns. It sounded like more than one machine gun, and it just didn't stop. Like
1: and a lot of people, when the second burst came and they understood how bad things actually were, started to run, and then there was just a complete stampede. All
0: the walls in the, in the location were about 10 to 15 feet high, and you just couldn't
1: climb up. So everyone was just getting bottlenecked. There was no escape. It we was just 10 days, it
0: was just a kill box. I Richard, what's been so disturbing about this case is how a single person could kill and injure so many people. What do we know so far about how that was possible?
1: Well, th- this is a thing that comes up with many mass shootings that we've seen, that people are surprised that so much damage can be done by an individual or two people. And that's when there aren't even fully automatic weapons involved. In the Virginia Tech shooting in 2007, a gunman using only pistols, uh, not even rifles, killed 32 people, one shot at a time. This guy, if he had a fully automatic weapon, Mm -hmm. the only limitation really is on how much time he has to shoot and how much ammunition he has to reload. How much time
0: passed from the beginning of the shooting to the end, do we know?
1: That's not clear. We've heard estimates of maybe seven minutes, ten minutes, plenty of time to do a lot of killing. And how did the shooting end? Right. SWAT teams swarmed into the hotel, and they realized that the shooting was coming from an upper floor. And starting on the 29th floor, they went up, going floor by floor, room by room, Hmm very methodical, cautious process because you don't know whether, you know, he's going to shoot you as you approach. You don't know whether there are booby traps. And finally, they found him on the 32nd floor. um, And when they entered his room, according to the police, he had already shot and killed himself.
0: Do we know the motive of the shooter? It's early. That may still be evolving, our understanding. But what do we know?
1: At this point, nothing. Absolutely nothing.
0: The police are just trying to figure out why on earth. If
1: they know anything, they haven't said.
0: And what do we know about the shooter himself.
1: 64 years old, retired, lived with his girlfriend. Uh, The neighbors thought of him as a nice, quiet guy. Uh, He has a brother who lives in Orlando, Florida, Mm -hmm. who's talked to the media uh, a number of times and has said, you know... I mean, my brother did this. I... This is like it was done, you know, like he shot us. I mean... If he'd have killed my kids, I couldn't be more... Dumbfounded. I mean, uh, it doesn't... so last There's time, nothing. You last know, just completely happened, shocked uh, by this uh, and saying that he was as ordinary a guy as you could hope to meet. He talked about how um, after Hurricane Irma had blown through Florida, his brother was texting him, uh, checking up on their mother to see how she was and, and had sent her a walker to make sure she could move around. The last time she talked to him, no indication of anything. I mean... Nothing. We've contacted a gun store where he bought three of his weapons in the last year, and the gun store owner said he set off no alarm bells. He passed a background check. The police where he lives and has lived in the past have all said that he has no criminal history. They have no record of him. Find out who sold him the machine gun. Uh, There's no... I don't know what else to say. I just... Had had I mean, it's his fault that he did this. I mean, but I'd like to know where he found the machine gun, because that's not something that's that easy to come by, I assume. We do have this one sort of odd possibility, which is that ISIS has taken credit for this and said that he's a, uh, a, a soldier inspired by them and that he converted to Islam a few months ago. We don't have any of any confirmation of any of that. And some of ISIS's claims in the past have turned out to be unfounded. Uh, so we're a little leery of that. What the FBI has said is that so far, at least, they have no knowledge of his being involved in any extremist group of any kind.
0: So finally, Richard, what did President Trump have to say about this attack? I believe this is the first time he's had to deal with a mass shooting as president.
1: Right. The, the president's response was. It was an act of pure evil. Fairly standard for a president talking about bringing people together and, and making the country safe. In moments of tragedy and horror, America comes together as one, and it always has. He He invoked togetherness and God. May God bless the souls of the lives that are lost. May God give us the grace of healing, and may God provide the grieving families with strength to carry on. Thank you. God bless America. Thank you.
0: Richard, thank you very much. Sure. On Monday night, police inspecting Stephen Paddock's home in Mesquite, Nevada, said they had found in excess of 18 more guns, as well as explosives and several thousand rounds of ammunition. We'll be right back.
1: It's go time. As in, now's the time to go open and fund a Fidelity IRA. By contributing up to the $6,000 maximum limit before the extended 2020 federal income tax deadline of May 17th, you could reduce your taxable income. So don't wait. Visit fidelity.com slash The Daily to make a tax-smart move today. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity does not provide tax advice. Consult a tax professional regarding your specific situation. Fidelity Brokerage Services. Member NYSE SIPC.
0: It's been almost two weeks since Hurricane Maria made landfall on the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico. And 95% of the island still has no electricity. 89% of cell phone towers are broken, and 73% of ATMs are still not working. With residents frustrated by a delayed response from federal officials, and communication to and from the island limited, a group of New York Times reporters traveled the island for 24 hours to see the conditions for themselves. One of them is Francis Robles, who goes by Frenchie.
2: Where are we going first? I don't know. I'm looking at the old-fashioned way on the map. So I drew the short straw and ended up with a night shift. So Erica Rodriguez, who is a local photographer, she lives here in Puerto Rico, we climbed into her Nissan Versa, and uh, we just set about driving along the south coast to see what we would find. Do you think this road is open, the three that connects Guayama to, yeah, to Ponce? So we were driving along. Oh, this is Oh, yeah, that smells now. And we smelled this really terrible stench. We're like, what is that? Wow, oh, look at that. Look at that. We looked up, and there was a supermarket. It was called the Plaza do Mercado or something like that. Well, should we go over there? It didn't even look like it had been hit by a hurricane. It looked like somebody ate it and spit it out. Wow. We'll see if these folks will talk to us. Buenas. I'm a periodista, the, the New York Times. And so obviously the food had gone bad. You know, there was a lot of food rotting in that supermarket. Tell me some of the things that you've seen since the hurricane he came through here. Wow. A
0: little bit of everything.
2: Three guards are outside to make sure that nobody loots the remaining. Groceries that are in the store. I mean not that you were intimidated, but what are what are the kinds of things that people do to intimidate you to let you in to let them into the store at night? Shot fired. Um, six or five guys. But he understood very clearly that people were really in a moment of crisis.
0: Have a kid say I'm hungry, you can't give them food, kid gotta eat. So they they're gonna they're gonna try to get it.
2: And you just sensed a desperation from them of of just like, look, there's no jobs here. And this I'm really lucky to be sitting here in this parking lot, making seven twenty five because not everybody has that opportunity. Driving around the town square.
0: Okay, so after you're done visiting the supermarket, you get back in the car. Where did you go next?
2: We started heading uh, what direction we're we going? We're going west. Towards Ponce, and uh, we got to a town called Salinas. I thought it was the other way, but I have the worst instructions, so don't listen to me. Oh no, this is a big tree. Never mind. We uh, came upon a funeral home. All right, so we are pulled up at Funeraria Salinas Memorial. So there was a really loud generator in the uh, in the driveway. You can hear a generator going, so I think I just answered my own question about how they keep the bodies cold. And there was this guy, like a worker man, hosing things down and tying up cables. And I was like, excuse me, you know, do you, can you point me in the direction of the funeral director? And he said, I'm the funeral
0: director. So all
2: of the suits that he wears for the funerals are soaked. So he's wearing uh, jeans and a, and a polo shirt, and there's a, a wake going on
0: right now. So I'm going to talk closer. Who is this man, and why did he open up his funeral home for a wake despite it being in the in the pretty awful condition? It sounds like it's in.
2: Oh, he needs money. I mean, he had gone a whole week without any work, mm-hmm. so. He was thrilled that somebody came by to, to give him business. Buenas tardes, señora. Está? Uh, I interviewed the, the family that was doing the wake, and they said that they had gone to three different funeral mm. homes, and they were all in shambles. She said, and I got to this one, and he was dragging out wet, muddy furniture onto the street, and she said, are you open for business? You know, my son died the day of the hurricane. And he said, well, you see how it is, wow. but, you know... If, if, you're, if you're willing to accept it in these conditions, let's do it. And she said, let's do this.
0: So, Frenchie, I don't speak Spanish, but the funeral home director used a particular phrase, hacer de trepas corazones. What does that, what does that mean? She
2: said, the tripas corazones." Oh, the tripas corazones. Yeah. Oh, okay. Basically, from uh-huh. intestines, you make hearts. Yeah. Hmm. So kind of like if you were to translate the expression, you know, someone gives you a bowl of lemons and you make lemonade. Hmm. ¿Es
0: su hijo? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, Frenchie, you met the mother of this man who had died and for whom the wake was being held. How did he die?
2: Yes. He had a heart condition. He was only 29 years old, and he died the morning of the hurricane. So this lady, you know, she describes this really crushing moment or, or this period of time where because, the, you know, they're in the middle of a hurricane, she can't even go to her son's wife. Mm, right. And then even a week after the death, which is when I see her, she still hadn't been able to tell people that he had died because there's no phones.
0: Right, no email. Mm. And
2: so, you know, she looked around. She was happy to have the people that were there, but she said, you know, that it would have been packed if people knew and that people were going to be so upset when they learned that that he had died and, and they didn't get a chance to say goodbye.
0: So I'm thinking, Frenchie, about how challenging it has to be For anyone to communicate with family or friends on the island, the way you're describing the challenges for this family, how widespread a problem is it right now for families in Puerto Rico to even find out that someone in their family or that a friend is missing?
2: People are desperate to find out information about their relatives. Um, As we were driving down, I was listening to the radio and... All of a sudden I heard somebody crying and I was like, What is you know, what is that racket? And I was listening and it was someone uh desperate to find a relative who was missing.
1: So this is a radio show where people
0: call in? Yeah, this is on the AM because I think they're 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 the ones that are transmitting the most. The FMOs FM of the channels are out. Because, I mean, radio right now, it's the only way of communication. The cell phones are out, TV is out, electricity is out, so...
2: There's a desperation. Like, even though not that many people died in the hurricane, you know, how do you know that my family wasn't one of them? You don't know. And so when, as I drove around the last 10 days... Nobody asked me for anything. Nobody asked me for a bottle of water. Nobody asked me for a granola bar. Nobody asked me for gas. The thing that they asked me for over and over and over again was to send a text message to their relatives. Like they were like, "Oh my God, huh. you have a phone. You're gonna go back to San Juan where there's a signal for five minutes. You know, will you use five of your minutes to, to send? Oh my God, here's my my son in Japan, and here's this one."
0: And what did you do?
2: I did it. I did it. From there, we went to a hospital. The hurricane has had an absolutely crippling effect on the healthcare system in Puerto Rico. So you're hearing people with uh, cancer who go for their chemo treatments and, oh, sorry, we didn't get the chemo drugs. You're hearing dialysis patients who, oh, sorry, the dialysis place doesn't have any diesel, so we're going to send you over to this other place. So my mother's brother lives in the countryside. He's diabetic. His insulin has been out of the refrigerator since Maria hit, which is, it's going to be two weeks on Wednesdays. So, what is that, tomorrow? So, yikes, you know, you're not supposed to keep insulin in this kind of temperature. And so I do...
0: be lethal if he yeah. doesn't. If 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 it basically turns it ineffective.
2: Absolutely. So that you know, I think that's going to be the next stage of this crisis. Where, you know, if people like my uncle go into a diabetic coma, is you know, is that a hurricane-related injury or death? It is, it is. I you know, I, I think it is. One of the guys that I met in the emergency room told me that after he left the ER, he was going to go to the ice factory to get in line. And I was like, what are you talking about? It's 2 o'clock in the morning. Right. He said, I said, what time is the place open? Is it like a 24-hour ice shop? And he said, no, it opens at 7. But uh, you know, if I get in line now, maybe I'll get some ice. And so I went over to the place. It was only a few blocks away, and there were hundreds of people in line in the, in lounge chairs. They were sleeping. You know, it was like a it was like they were camping out for tickets to a ticket concert, and they were camping out for two bags of ice. Right, so it is four forty eight, and I think this is going to be our last stop. Wait. At about five in the morning, we found the police station. It was uh, on this, tucked in this residential street surrounded by crowing roosters. I don't know. Oh, wait, let's see. It says precinct 558. And uh, saw a lady come running in with a pink bathrobe and blue slippers. And I realized then that, you know, because there's no communication on the island, she had a problem. She needed to drive to the station herself to report it. Uh, and there was a bunch of officers sitting around um, not patrolling and not patrolling because they didn't have the gas to do so.
0: So driving home at the end of this really long night, what was on your mind, Frenchie?
2: The thing that was most impressive to me is how widespread the damages are. It's just Everybody is in the same boat of trying to make do in the dark with this really daunting realization that we're in this for the long haul because Hmm. who knows how long it's going to take, particularly to get the power back on.
0: Frenchy, you're Puerto Rican yourself. What has it been like for you to be on this island covering the aftermath of this storm?
2: You know, it's, it's interesting question because, uh, remember that I also just did Hurricane Irma, right? So, uh, that hit Florida and I live in Florida. So, you know, this has been like, you know, personal hurricane month, uh, for me. Mm. And this one, there's a sense of panic that I don't think you felt in Florida. The Florida, the panic was the day the storm was passing and I was terrified, But then once the storm passed, I felt okay. And here, you don't ever really feel that okay.
0: Hmm. You never feel okay?
2: Not really. You always feel a little scared.
0: Scared of what exactly?
2: (sighs) Scared that everything is going to go south. How many days can they go without that much food in the supermarkets? Um, How many days can chemotherapy patients go without getting their chemo? What what happens to the diabetics? I mean, I know they're saying that all the people who get dialysis are being transferred. Are they? I mean, I don't know. Maybe they're leaving a note on the door. Like, I don't know how. I don't know how they're getting the word out to everyone. And uh, I really fear that. Um, right. That you know, that there's going to be casualties here. I, I just don't see how there's not going to be.
0: Frenchie, thank you. Very much, and I wish you and your family there the best.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Michael.
0: On Monday, President Trump said of Puerto Rico, quote, There's never been a piece of land that we've known that was so devastated. He arrives in Puerto Rico later today. Here's what else you need to know today. The Times has obtained hundreds of pages of internal records that show how the head of the EPA, Scott Pruitt, is spending his time as he rolls back dozens of environmental regulations. On a single day, April 26th, Pruitt met with top executives from one of the nation's largest coal-burning utilities, directors from a coal mining firm, and executives from General Motors, all of which are pushing for looser environmental rules. According to the records, Pruitt has held daily meetings with corporate executives and lobbyists for the industries he regulates, but almost none with environmental groups or public health advocates. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow.